welcome to another episode of The Afterward, our series of conversations on books, reading, and the church, brought to you by the Westminster Bookstore. In today's episode, we host CCF's Mike Emlett for a conversation about his new book, Saints, Sufferers, and Sinners, which released in January of this year from, from New Growth Press. Uh, you'll hear more about this book from Mike and Johnny uh, in just a minute, but I wanted to add that for me personally, this has been a an absolutely foundational uh, book in thinking about how do we how do we actually bear one another's burdens in ways that are really helpful. Um, when do you when do you speak? When do you point out sin? When do you overlook sin to address uh, a more urgent need? Uh, when do you bring in scripture, or when do you simply uh, be present? with somebody. And uh, Mike's framework of, of saints, sufferers, and sinners, these three biblical identities of, of every believer, um, and his, his way, the way he unpacks those and, and frames them to understand uh, how you keep these three identities in balance uh, has just been really helpful for me personally. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a tool I reference probably every day when I'm uh, interacting with my kids or my wife or close friends and, and thinking through, uh, how, can I, how can I be helpful? How can I uh, speak? How can I love well? Uh, this is just a great book for, for knowing how to do that. Uh, so if you haven't picked up a copy, we have it on sale for a limited time. It's only $8 uh, over on our website at wtsbooks.com. So I'd really encourage you to Pick up a copy if you haven't read it already, or maybe uh, grab a handful to, to hand out to friends. Now, Mike and Johnny, I've had the privilege to get to know both of you uh, over the last uh, several, several years at CCF and Westminster events in the classroom, uh, but also at church as we've uh, attended uh, church with both of you separately at different seasons. Uh, and I've had the chance to get to know um, you both a little bit. One of the things that I that I really appreciate that I've noticed specifically uh, about you both is the the balance that you maintain between work and ministry, family and church, uh, but also finding time for for hobbies. Uh, Mike, I know you love pottery, and we have uh, several of your your mugs uh, that we use often. I know you also love gardening. Uh, Johnny, I know you love uh, soccer and reading. Uh, why do you think it's important to find time for these seemingly lesser activities um, when the the many pressing and urgent needs uh, are surrounding us that we could easily spend all of our time on? Why is it important to still maintain hobbies? Johnny, you want to kick us off? Well, I think it's because of the way uh, God made us. He didn't make us to um, do one thing seven days a week. He made us to work for a time and then to rest for a time. Uh, and I think hobbies play a part in that. We need, we all need downtime. Uh, you just think about your daily routine uh, in God's wise providence. He made us to be beings that need seven, eight hours sleep a night. So there's a bit of downtime. And uh, I think hobbies during the day when we're awake are also a really helpful way to uh, get some of that downtime. Uh, I'm always struck by Jesus in the Gospels uh, that he loved his food, he loved his wine and his food, 
Uh, he was a botanist, a zoologist, um, observing the flowers and the animals and the birds and the foxes. And so he really, as a person, really embraced God's world and the good things in God's world. I always like to think of him as the man of Ecclesiastes, actually living in a fallen world, enjoying his wine and drink uh, and food to the glory of God, uh, even in the midst of all of the brokenness of a fallen world. So that's the way I like to look on it. Uh, what about you, Mike? How, how do you view hobbies and why do you enjoy them? Yeah, I think similarly <clears throat> that the that need for for rest, uh, for recreation, or really recreation, right? Um, pleasure, um, all of those things are 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 important. They can certainly they can become ends in and of themselves, but they don't have to be, right? They are these avocational these avocational pursuits are uh, are things that uh, that God's designed for you know for our joy. I think of uh, Psalm thirty four eight. Um, you know, taste and see that the Lord is is good. Um, that when I engage with creation, as many hobbies like gardening is one of my one of my hobbies um, that I really enjoy. Um, pottery. Uh, there, there's a way in which you know those creative energies and engaging with creation uh, points us to uh, to the Lord, and that's that's joyous in itself. Yeah. Uh, you quoting that, Sam, reminded me of the other one, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, Yeah, which is another nice one for basically enjoying all of what God's given us in this world. Yes. Uh, so, Mike, you, you um, are familiar to some of us here at Westminster, but perhaps not to all of our listeners. Can you give us just a very brief uh, background of where you're from and your upbringing and how you came to faith? Yeah, I uh, grew up in uh, Pennsylvania and uh, grew up going to uh, a local Lutheran uh, church, but uh, don't remember the gospel really being uh, being preached there. But when I was uh, when I was 13, my grandparents, who uh, were Christians, uh, took me and a bunch of my cousins to hear uh, David Wilkerson uh, preach of, of uh, Cross and Switchblade uh, fame. And uh, at that uh, evangelistic uh, rally, uh, he gave an altar call, and I went forward along with several of my uh, my cousins. So that's I how I came to the came to the Lord. And I I remember speaking to my uh, my my pastor the following week, and I was like, Pastor, I I'm saved, and he was sort of like, uh, Okay, uh, weren't you always? You know, like so it was, uh, but it was just a, a real uh, moment uh, where the where the Lord met me I really for the first time understood that I was uh, that I was a sinner and uh, desperately needed God's grace mm. and from that you didn't go straight into Christian ministry which you're in now in uh, CCEF in Christian counseling uh, you first went into uh, the medical field so mm -hmm. can you tell us about that transition from uh, being a physician of the body to wanting to sort of be involved in uh, being a physician of the soul, what, what led to that transition? Yeah, well, it was certainly a circuitous, uh, circuitous route. I think when I first went into medical practice, and I was a, a family physician, so a general practitioner, I actually struggled uh, to be content because my collegiate and medical school experience really had pushed 
me towards the importance of discipleship and evangelism. And how could you do that when you're working 60 to 80 hours a week? So it, it felt like, what am I doing? You know, mm-hmm. and then I got involved in a church where there was such a strong emphasis with a with a reformed world and life view. And for the I think for the first time, really began to to understand how God, uh, you know, viewed vocation and began to recover that sense of, wow, this is what I'm doing here is is an extension of, of Genesis 1.28. And so I thought, I can do this. I can do this for the rest of my life. And then in God's, you know, uh, ironic uh, and providential timing, over a course of a few years, just began to sense a growing um, call towards uh, towards gospel ministry. Um, got more involved in my local church. <clears throat> opportunities to do some some teaching and discipleship. Um, loved the opportunities I had to engage with my with my patients on spiritual matters. Enough so that I felt like I need to I need to explore this. And so with you know with the counsel and input of my you know my pastors, uh, both of whom had gone to to Westminster. Um, I uh, I set up uh, to uh, to come in the mid '90s. So I started at Westminster in '96. Um, worked part time in medicine while I was going to seminary, not knowing exactly what the the shape of the call would be. Um, but over the course of my seminary training. Well, I loaded up on a lot of counseling courses because I figured I'm going to be doing a fair bit of counseling, I think, in the in pastoral ministry. And uh, and again, as I graduated, though I thought I would be going into the local church um, to, to minister, I was invited to come on staff uh, with CCF as a faculty member. And so I, upon graduation in 2001, I joined CCF. And so I've been there for, for 20 years now as a faculty member and counselor. Okay. And um, as you've traversed both fields of medical um, field of caring for the body and um, the uh, spiritual field of caring for the soul, what what similarities do you see between those two and what differences? Mm-hmm. I actually think there's more overlap than not. Um, so, for example, just the the importance of good relational skills, you know, for, for a physician. So bedside manner uh, matters. Are you, are you kind? Are you compassionate? Are you someone who listens well and asks a good question? Do people feel welcomed by you? Well, that's, that's true for, you know, for uh, pastoral care and, you know, counseling uh, as well. And I think also there's, you know, there's overlap in the, in the diagnostic process, right? People come to physicians with, various symptoms and physician seeks to take a history and understand what's going on and then make a diagnosis. And I think in a similar way, a counselor is taking in the the story of the person and trying to make sense of it, trying to understand it, uh, in this case, right, in biblical counseling from a, from a biblical framework so that someone comes in with anxiety or depression. I'm trying to understand, well, what's What's underneath that? What what could be contributing? Whether it is you know bodily brain based things or whether it's you know desires, fears that are you know that are gripping the person. So in that sense, I think there's there's a lot of overlap, both in terms of the the way you build relationship as well as the uh, diagnostic uh, aspects, if you will. Yeah, I, I like that exegeting the soul. Mm-hmm. That's Not right. Just, yeah, yeah. 
and uh, diagnosing things as well. That's that's helpful analogy. Um, now, you in the Lord's providence, you've been led into CCF, and that's where you've been for 20 years. Uh, for some uh, listeners who may be unfamiliar with CCF or have heard of it and know it's to do with counselling, can you tell us what, what are the key distinctives of CCF compared to other models of biblical counselling? What, what, what does CCCF div, uh, define itself as theologically and, and some of its distinctives compared to other models? Yeah, in some ways, the, the biblical counselling slice of the counselling world is, is a very narrow slice. So in one sense, if someone is not familiar with biblical counselling, I'd probably help them to see how it differs from just the wider counseling field, including secular counseling or what you might call um, integrationist uh, counseling. So certainly, you know, as a biblical counselor, my starting point is, you know, what God has has done uh, through, uh, through Jesus Christ uh, in, in bringing redemption. So, what he says uh, in terms of that um, of that reality, who we are as people, what's our problem, and what's the solution to our problem is is found in what uh, our triune God has done in uh, in rescuing us. And so that is my you know my basic starting point uh, compared to obviously secular models, which are going to be materialistic and, and humanistic. So that's one huge, you know, divide mm-hmm. there. Uh, but then you you also have um, Christian counselors who they they may be professing Christians, but their their training may be more secular. And so what they're actually the question is what are they actually doing with with people? So they may they may in their own personal lives be strong believers, but the way they are practicing counseling may not be consonant in a sense with what they believe are ultimate, you know, ultimate issues. And again, there's even spectrum there, you know, among integrationist counselors. Um, so, so that's probably what I would lay out first, like, oh, here's this, you know, the spectrum of counseling. And then I think what's, you know, the biblical counseling, at least I would say the modern biblical counseling movement, right, uh, started with, you know, with Jay Adams in the, you know, late 60s, early 70s, this recovery of the authority and sufficiency, you know, of God's word um, to, um, to, to meet people in their struggles, um, as I said, to understand people and what's wrong and what the solution is. And I think some of the unique contributions of CCEF over the years have been, um, to point to the importance of the heart, uh, right? That that inner that inner person, that um, the wellspring of life uh, underlying our behaviors. So that was a you know just a seminal contribution um, in the the eighties and nineties. Uh, David Pallison mm-hmm. in particular. Um, so I think that's one really important aspect. Um, I think also the importance of of suffering, um, attending to suffering in people's lives, in addition to issues of sin, has probably been another uh, mark that um, of CCF's development over time, and and I would say the biblical counseling movement as a whole, and then perhaps one of the, I think this is maybe more distinctive for CCF among the the biblical counseling movement would be. A, just this robust commitment to a redemptive historical approach uh, to scriptures. I, I'm sure in, you know, because of our 
close association and training, you know, um, that most of us have had at, at Westminster. I think that maps on so well, right, to the uh, the the storied nature of people's lives and the and the and the need to meet them not just with um, you know with isolated texts so to speak mm-hmm. but with this this story that so wonderfully connects with Jesus in so many uh, thematic ways so I think that's that's some of mm-hmm. the emphases I would I would highlight yeah I thought the title of your uh, new book um, saints sufferers and sinners sort of captures some of those distinctives, doesn't it? It's, it does, know, yes. A. Adams was very much focused on the counselee as a sinner who needs to deal with sin, and rightly so, because we're all sinners. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, um, you, you know, the development has been, yes, but there are some things that happen to us in life that is just part of being in a fallen, broken world that's groaning mm-hmm. for the new creation. So sufferers. But the, the thing I liked about your book was also, uh, affirming the person as a saint, that, that this is how scripture is addressed to people. It's addressed to saints. That's one of the things that struck me early on in the book was um, <clears throat> it's not just written to some people suffering or sinners. It's actually written to Christians called saints. So was that a deliberate thing on your part to use that title that sort of does really encapsulate what CCF is, is doing and its framework? Yeah, I think uh, I I do think that's true. That it's I'm trying to encapsulate that whole, in a sense, approaching God's people in that holistic way. If these if these three experiences are true of us um, as believers, this side of glory that we are that we are children of the living God, um, that we that we meet many trials and tribulations uh, in our lives, and that we're struggling with the continued presence of sin in our life, then the way we approach people ought to take that into consideration. And so that's the way God approaches us, right? In, in Scripture, He approaches His people as saints who need that encouragement and confirmation in their identity in Christ, um, as as people who are suffering and need consolation, and then as people who who need winsome challenge to their uh, to their sin in light of his mercies yeah uh now this isn't the first book you've written uh you've written a very helpful book called descriptions and prescriptions uh thinking biblically about uh, medications and psychiatric diagnosis now most christians sitting in the pew haven't been to medical school and don't have the training and yet we, you know, interact often with people in church or Christian circles who have some uh, psychiatric disorder. So what's your advice to some of us who don't really know very much? Uh, how best can we minister to people like that? Have you, any, have you got any sort of um, basic principles that you encourage people to think about? Well, I, I think a starting point is just recognizing that we don't need an MD or a PhD to uh, to approach uh, those who are struggling, even in those focal ways. You know, in terms of psychiatric uh, disorders, we're we're brothers and sisters in, in in Christ, and so as and as such, we're called to 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 love one another and to move toward one another. So I would say, just recognizing that that's what God calls us to do um, is is really critical. And so I guess one question would be, can we 
can we move towards, right? This is true of anybody who's different from us, right? It can be uncomfortable in a sense to move towards someone who's who's not like you, who may be struggling in ways different from ways that you're struggling. But with with God's help, can you move toward that person and can you engage them, right, by listening, by asking questions, recognizing again that you don't you don't have to be an expert on their diagnosis. You can be God equips you to be an expert in love, an expert in gentleness, an expert in humility. You know, these these and fruits of the spirit that, that come out interrelationally. So I guess that would be one thing I would say. Ask God to give you, you know, courage and wisdom as you as you move towards uh, someone. And then I, I think getting to know someone well enough, um, Ed Welch talks about this, know someone well enough to pray thoughtfully and intelligently uh, for them. So that means, again, asking asking questions, really being interested as opposed to, and particularly if someone might say something odd in, in response to your question, you know, hang in there, you know, follow, follow up, you know, like, hey, the CIA has, you know, bugged my house. And it's like, well, that must be a really scary thing. What is that? What is that like for you? Um, as opposed to trying to just either talk them out of that or say, uh, okay, I don't know what else to say here. Um, engage yeah. with where they're at. So I think that those would be a couple of things. And, and that's, God has equipped us all to be able to, to move towards one another in that way. Uh, and we have that wonderful example in the Lord Jesus, don't we? That the, the people who were awkward and strays and outcasts in society, he has that lovely movement towards them. And, and mm. when, him, he never shuns them away, but lets them come to him. Uh, it's a lovely right. Gospels. Um, let me ask you a slightly controversial question. The, the COVID vaccine. <laughs> as, a, yes. as a medical practitioner and people uh, um, are, you know, different perspectives on it. Some feeling maybe anxious to get it. Have you any uh, basic uh, tips and principles that we can think of as we consider the vaccine? Well, I'm actually scheduled to get my first vaccine later uh, later this afternoon, so I certainly uh, feel uh, feel comfortable with that. I mean, I, I think w- one of the things that we that we need to realize is that um, scientific development, particularly when it's accelerated, there's there are going to be stutter steps, right? There'll be things we we've seen that over the last year where um, we might we might put forth this uh, this idea or this principle and then later have to say well but now we can this needs to be nuanced a bit a bit further and i think yes those things can become uh, politicized but that's actually true of the scientific process uh, in in general that there are there are hypotheses you test hypotheses you you take a step forward you take two steps back and and so in that sense i'm you know, at least certainly what I've read of the read of the process, I uh, I feel that um, I feel very comfortable proceeding with you know with getting the getting the vaccine. And you know, everybody obviously has to come to their own their own conclusions about that. But um, yeah, I think just recognizing that that mm-hmm. science is a that's a pro is a process of uh, of development and and discovery. Yeah, half of what I learned in medical school is no longer valid and anymore. You know, so there's this uh, this sense in which, yeah, we'll look back 
in 20 years, if the Lord gives us that and say, wow, okay, that has very different times. Yeah. Yeah. Helpful. Um, let's, let's get on to your book, uh, Saints, Suffers and Sinners, which is mm-hmm. the growth press and uh, I believe is selling very well at the bookstore, uh, which is great to hear. Your subtitle is Loving Others as God Loves Us. Um, but you start not with our love um, uh, for others, but you start really with an opening section called Understanding People, uh, Operating Instructions Required. I like your opening sentence that uh, nearly everything we buy comes with instructions. And then your next paragraph begins, but don't you sometimes wish people came with operating instructions? Hi, <laughs> yes. very true. And, and your point there is that we're complex beings, aren't we? we? We're hard to work out. And so loving each other mm-hmm. is a complex and, and a difficult thing. Um, your next chapter then deals with what is true of every believer you meet and you deal with these categories of they're a saint, they're a sufferer, they're a sinner. Uh, I thought it was helpful you deal with uh, uh, the unbeliever. How do we categorize the unbeliever? Mm-hmm. Speak about them being a, an image bearer, blessed by common grace, quoting John Murray, uh, the systematician from Westminster here. And then I love that you you don't then even go straight into how are we to love others? How, do we, how are we to love saints? How are we to love sufferers and then sinners? You have a chapter in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm up at the front of the book, which for me sort of becomes the lens through which to view the Christian that you're trying to minister to. Um, do you want to unpack a little what you mean by Jesus Christ, the ultimate saint, sufferer and sinner? And I should make clear you have sinner in inverted commas. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. So tell me, tell us what you mean by each of those categories in relation to Christ. Yes. So if he right, if Jesus is the, the the second Adam, right? If he's the he if he's the truly human one, then he embodies these very ex, these very human experiences. So as the ultimate saint, he is the 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 perfect son of God. He's he is the one who at his at his baptism, right? Receive that, uh, receive that declaration from the Father. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so, that's that's his his basic um, his basic identity is Son, a beloved Son. He is also the ultimate sufferer, um, right? Uh, he is he is the suffering servant. He is the man of of sorrows, and that you know that begins with the with the incarnation uh, the incarnation is essentially a, a down escalator into the basement of human misery and the lord jesus uh takes that takes that journey um the, the the son of god takes that journey and so the incarnation itself but his his life was a life marked by suffering uh, oftentimes when we think of the suffering of christ we think of the you know the the cross and certainly that is that is the you know the culmination of that uh, of that suffering, but his entire his entire life in that sense was one of of suffering, culminating in his in his death. Um, obviously, as 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 Paul says in Romans, uh, one you know vindicated you know by his uh, by his resurrection. In fact, d- declared to be the Son of God through from his resurrection from the dead, and then he is thirdly the the ultimate 
as you say, sinner in quotes, um, not obviously he's the, he's the sinless one, but I'm thinking here of what Paul says in second Corinthians five twenty one. he who knew no sin became sin for us that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, he fully, fully as the second Adam identified with us in our, in our sinful condition. So I think that you're right, uh, Johnny, that, that is, that lens is really important for us to to see as we understand our own experiences as saints, suffers, and sinners. We, in that sense, are following in the footsteps of of Jesus Himself. Yeah, uh, the other two parts of the Bible I was thinking of with Jesus as a sinner in inverted commas, he he became sin for us, as you say, two Corinthians. I was thinking of his um, <clears throat> baptism. It was a baptism of repentance. Mm-hmm. on the Baptist and John says no you should be baptizing me and Jesus says no do this to fulfill mm-hmm. all righteousness and it is that idea that he became the substitute sinner he yes. goes through a baptism of repentance <clears throat> not because he had anything to repent of because he was mm-hmm. impeccable and sinless uh, but that he was in a sense substituting for sinners in that baptism of repentance and then also as the singer of the Psalms, <clears throat> you think about how many Psalms, Jesus sung the Psalms, he was mm-hmm. the great Psalm singer, but you think how many Psalms are confessions of guilt and sin? So yes. Jesus sung these, Psalm 51, he sang yes. impeccable mm-hmm. in his mm-hmm. with women. Uh, but it's, it's like his intercessory prayers, praying on behalf of sinners, these prayers of confession. Uh, to the Father. Um, mm. So that was just two things that came to my mind as you introduced this category of Jesus being a substitute sinner. Yes. You know, for us. <clears throat> and obviously that's the difference with us. You know, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. That's right. And uh, sometimes I think we think, well, can he really identify with me in my sin and my temptations? Uh, but I was teaching recently on the humanity of Christ and being peccable, impeccable. I was arguing that he was impeccable, but precisely because he was perfect, the force of the temptation Mm -hmm. experienced were even greater than what we experience. Yes. Sort of said Satan only needs to use 50% force with us to get us to submit to the temptation. Yes. Christ, he had to come at 100%. Right. Full blast. Yeah, and yet he was perfect mm. and can identify with us. He felt the same temptations externally to himself, and yet he remained perfect. So that's why he's the the perfect savior. That's and right. You, you you got me thinking along these trails as I was uh, reading your book. So thank you for that stimulation. Yeah. Um, so you take each of these categories: saints, sufferers, sinners, and then you start to apply it after that chapter on Christ. And the book's divided up into those parts, uh, loving others as saints, loving others as sufferers, loving others as sinners. Why do you think it's important to start with loving others as saints? Why did you have that order, saints, Mm -hmm. sufferers, sinners? Yes, and again, I'm assuming that we're talking with uh, with believers, um, but because that, starting there is is most foundational. Like, what what is your primary identity 
um, as a believer. You are you are a saint. You are you are someone who has been uh, who has been justified, sanctified in in Jesus Christ. And so, that's the most basic um, designation uh, that that a person that a person can have. Um, and so that's why I think it's important to to start with that. You see that you see that in Paul's epistles, um, he, except for Galatians, right? He begins with affirmations. Here's who you are here in Christ. Here's here's how I'm encouraged. Um, here's what I see the Spirit doing in your life. And then yes, he moves on. Uh, particularly as I'm thinking of you know First Corinthians, he moves right into it. You know, in verse ten in chapter in chapter one in terms of uh, their issues, but. But look at where he starts. He he begins with these affirmations of who they are in Christ, and I think that's that's really that's really key because we are we are saints who suffer and we are saints who sin. But at the most foundational level, this is who we are: children of the living God through the work of Jesus. You have a lovely illustration in here where you quote Tim Keller of how he likes to apply this in marriage difficulties. Do you want to tease that out a wee bit where he talks about the glory self? Mm -hmm. Couples, you know, with more forbearance and forgiveness. Sure. And I, um, I heard this years ago when he, uh, when he was teaching uh, at 10th Prez, I believe, but just this idea that, spouses um, are are tempted, particularly if there's if they're conflicted, right? They're tempted to look at what's wrong uh, with the with the other person and to 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 self-justify and to and to to blame shift. And what he was saying there is, and this is really akin to to c s. Lewis's idea that you have not met a mere mortal. Um, and so this sense of if I'm this person that I'm fighting with, if I really got a you know, got a vision for who God has made them to be and what they will be like. Wow, <laughs> maybe I need to I need to pause and and think about that a bit more and realize um, this is what God recognize now what God has already been doing in their life. Where are they now demonstrating the the fruit of the Spirit? But then, who is this glorious being that they are going to be when they are when they are perfected at the at the resurrection? So that's what what he uh, what he was putting forth in terms of recognize the glory self, you know, of your of your spouse um, rather than what's wrong. Focusing on what's you know what's uh, what are the issues um, at hand? Yeah, I'm always struck in Colossians three. You know, we were raised up with Christ, Christ is in you, the hope of glory. And then Paul goes on to give all these imperatives of how not to speak to each other with malice. Mm-hmm. And it's because when you speak to someone like that with malice, you, it's like you're speaking to Christ like that because that person united to Christ. Yes. That, that's always really helped me with those sort of long string of all these things you should or shouldn't do. But when you get the beginning part that it's actually to do with union with Christ, then you see people in a, in a different light, as you say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, it's that you're really also highlighting that indicative imperative uh, structure, right? That what, what God has done for us in Christ precedes and then generates those, you know, those actions. And so, 
recognizing that in ourselves and recognizing what God has done in other people, then I think is, yeah, such an important starting point um, in our in our relationships. Yeah, you, you have a quote here actually by a non-Christian. I'm trying to see if I can find it now, um, <clears throat> where uh, you talk about the critical spirit. It's someone in the business world who says that uh, um, people have underestimated the, the oh, here it is, um, Zengler and Falkman, quote, they vastly underestimate, the employer vastly underestimates the power and necessity of positive reinforcement. Conversely, they greatly overestimate the value and benefit of negative or corrective feedback. I mean, it's a, it's a secular quote, but in God's common grace, there's a truth there, isn't it? And uh, as you say in an earlier chapter, it is striking that Paul writes to the Corinthians who are sexual immorality, lawsuits going on, a whole bunch of competitiveness of I am of Apollos, I am of Paul. Yet right at the beginning up front, he says to the saints in Corinth, (laughs) yeah, not the sinners, to the saints. And uh, I think that perspective that you're bringing here in this first section on loving others it seems really really helpful mm, yeah uh, well, tell us what you do then with uh, how god loves sufferers why do you have this category why aren't we just saints who sin why, why do you have this sort of category in which we are experiencing things that are not our responsibility or our fault we're not culpable for certain things that we're experiencing that affect us as creatures in god's world yeah, well, it's it's um, it is part of our experience, right? That we ex- that we have to deal with evil, whether it's evil that is coming at us from the outside, that's a suffering, or evil that that resides within our, our sin. And so both both aspects, you know, suffering and sin, are are part of living in our you know in our world, in our fallen world. And so, um, I, I mean, I. I'm remembering um, Voss's uh, Voss's quote uh, from biblical theology that all God disclosed of himself Mm. has come in response to the practical religious needs of his people as they emerged in the course of history. And I'm thinking, Mm. wow, that suffering is is a theme all throughout Scripture. You know, God's people are a suffering people. It is true. At times, they they bring that suffering on themselves um, in terms of the consequences of sin. But there are times that that's not at all the, the the case. And so, God moves toward His people who who are sufferers. And and I think Jesus captures it. You know, when He says in John sixteen thirty three, "In this world you will have tribulation." You know, He goes on and says, "But take heart, I have overcome the world." But He's acknowledging that there will be hardships and and mm-hmm. suffering uh, in in the disciples' lives and in our lives, and so God moves toward His people. And I mean, obviously, you see that preeminently as we were talking earlier in Jesus uh, Jesus Christ, um, who who takes on that uh, that role of of suffering servant. So. Mm-hmm. He knows suffering from the inside, uh, and so he is able to to help those um, who who are suffering. It's just it's a yeah. I think the right the Heidelberg Catechism talks about sin and misery. And mm. That is the that is our you know our experience uh, this mm. side of glory. Yeah, uh, and even the way you you have that early chapter on Christ, I was thinking it's it's not just that we live in a fallen world that we suffer. 
Uh, you bring this out later on, you say, and it's because we're now united to Christ that we're suffering because we're united to the great, perfect yes. sufferer. And, and that's really helpful as well. It's not like we're suffering alone in this broken world waiting for Jesus to return. We are suffering united to the one who suffered, and that's why we suffer. Yes. We are in union with him. Uh, I don't know if you're um, <clears throat> familiar with Amy Carmichael's mm. poem, Hast Thou No Scar? Mm, I'm not. Um, actually, I... Uh, I was going to say, I'll get it on my phone, but I'm talking to you on my phone, so I can't. <laughs> but for those listening, it's worth Googling, hast thou no scar? Mm. You basically sort of having a little um, poke at the Christian who's complaining about suffering and saying, I'm a disciple of Christ and why do I have to suffer? Or the Christian who claims to be a Christian and hasn't suffered much. And she's saying, where's your scar? Mm. If you're united to Christ, then um, you'll um, you'll suffer as well. You'll have scars in life as well. Yeah. And that sort of came to my mind when you were quoting uh, Dick Gaffin on page 70, where you said uh, Christian, where Gaffin says Christian suffering is always seen within the context of the coming of the kingdom of God in power and as a manifestation of the resurrection of Christ. And that was just after you're dealing with this idea of union with Christ is why, partly why we suffer. Um, but in that section, sorry, you, you're talking about how suffering is actually an important work of God for us. It's not just something that happens to us. It's something that God is doing, you know, in us and through us. Do you want to just unpack that a wee bit? That, that's the point, mm -hmm. sorry quote part of our sanctification yes I, and I you see that you see that in G, in Jesus ministry right that he certainly relief of suffering is clearly a, a priority in, mm -hmm. in the coming of the kingdom but so is that redemptive transformative work that God is doing in the midst of suffering um, and I think you know that happens in a, in a lot of different levels. So when we've, we've been talking about in some ways the most foundational level that we are. It, it is actually a, and Paul talks about this in, in Romans eight, you know, sixteen. This is actually a mark of our uh, of our adoption as children of of God. You know, when we read that, it's like, oh, Paul, I wish you would have said something else there in terms of this is how we know, you know, but but. He's very clear there in other places, right, that this is a mark of being children of the living God. So the, the very thing that makes me feel like I'm perhaps cut off and far away from my Savior actually puts me in the closest possible relationship uh, with him. Uh, so that's, I think that's one piece. But then also it's the, the work that God is doing is perfecting our character, Growing, growing us, James. You know, James one uh, two to two to five. Um, he is he is in the process of developing character, perseverance, depth of maturity. I, you know, if I'm honest, I want that end result, but I I prefer not to go through the course. Um, but that is that that seems to be very clear uh, in Scripture uh, and in the New Testament. This is God's appointed means for us growing up uh, into him who is the head of all things. Yeah, and, and it's because it was Christ. I'm thinking of Hebrews 5, 8. He learned obedience 
by the things that he suffered. Yeah. So Jesus didn't just have to obey the Ten Commandments in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Obey the Ten Commandments in a world of suffering. So he had legal obedience and suffering obedience. Mm -hmm. Either that's his perfect obedience, but he, you know, his obedience was manifested in the atmosphere of suffering. Um, I remember a, a Puritan quote that just come to me is God's rod is his pencil with which he draws the image of Christ on our hearts. Mm. That'd be a beautiful quote about wow. the discipline or the, you know, the suffering you're under at the moment. It's God's rod, which is his pencil drawing the image of Christ on your heart. Mm. And I think that's a helpful way to think of our suffering. Yeah. Before I move on to the next section on uh, loving others uh, as sinners, practically speaking, how does that affect your counseling? If you're talking to a sufferer, mm -hmm. what, what do you want people to take away from this chapter practically of how they will minister to those who present as sufferers? Well, certainly one thing you you never see right in scripture uh is god essentially saying you know get over it or it's not as bad as you as you think and and but it is as bad as we think right in the sense that the the, the son of god uh, died um because of this um and so i think one thing it means for me is that I, I really seek to understand the the person's story and the extent of their their suffering mm -hmm. um that would be, I think, one thing. Um, I think that I want to bring that gospel perspective, that hope and encouragement that they are with and in Jesus in the midst of their in the midst of their suffering. As I said earlier, it, it can feel like that that connection is severed or very minimal at, at best. And I think one of the ways in which I find that helps to to uh, to deepen that sense of connection is through the practice of lament, um, where where we cry out, and we see this all throughout the the Psalms, um, in particular the lament Psalms, where we bring our grief, our complaints, our concerns uh, to to the Lord, um, trust and 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 trust that He is at work in the in the midst of these sufferings, asking Him to to act in in line with His with his promises. I think that that engagement is something I want to ultimately see happen in a, in a suffering person's life. Um, not that they're going to have any particular clear answers, right? God generally doesn't give that uh, at all in terms of why he's doing what he's doing. But we do see these, these big patterns in scripture of conforming us to the image of his son in the midst of our, in the midst of our suffering. Yeah. Uh, some of the practical things you also mentioned, which I find really helpful and a reminder to me uh, as I encounter some pastoral situations, uh, is listening with patience, uh, asking good questions, uh, praying. And um, it's really something you presume here is that you're present with the person in their life at this time. You're asking them questions. You're being patient as you listen to them. Um, <clears throat> my wife and I, we lost a daughter. Our daughter died uh, five years ago tomorrow, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember we went to see a doctor who was a neonatal doctor. who's John Stott's medical doctor, actually, in London. 
And we just sat in the room and we just sort of cried together, the three of us. Mm. And he, yeah, he wasn't there for the stillbirth or anything, but um, he just was present and he asked good questions. But he came out with a quote that I've never forgotten. He said, um, suffering is not a question that requires an answer. It's not a problem that requires a solution. Mm. It's a mystery that requires a presence. Mm. I think it's anonymous. It might even be a pagan who said it. <laughs> but it, it, it's very, if it is a pagan, it's in God's common grace, very true. Mm. But it, for me, it captures you know, Emmanuel, God with us. That's right. And that's what you want in your suffering is not necessarily someone to say much, but just to sit there with you, you know, just to be present because it's a mystery what's happened. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's not much to say, but just to be present. So it's like you were saying, it's about moving towards people in their suffering, not moving away. And And we remember sadly probably in our own sinfulness we remember the people who weren't in touch <laughs> when Layla died yeah. we, we remember very much the people who were in touch but we also have I, I don't mean it in a we have a mental note of it that we're holding it against them but we just remember at the time being very aware who didn't get in touch yeah. <laughs> and and that your books really help remind me of that that when someone's suffering just a bit of contact that's right being present with them can be so very helpful. Yes, sometimes we're we're way too wordy uh, in our in our coming to to someone, and I think that that presence, the being with, is is so critical. And uh, yeah, I mean, you see it in uh, in the Book of Job, like his, his friends, were great friends, for the first seven days, and <laughs> and then they opened their mouths, and then everything went downhill from there. So. <laughs> I yeah, think but, right that the 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 presence uh, is so important. Mm. Okay, so your your next th- section is uh, loving others as sinners. So you want to tell us how you approach this? What, what's your angle here? Mm-hmm. So the the way I approach it is seeing seeing Jesus uh, in in action, um, and mm. he I, I tell the the how he approaches the the Samaritan woman, um, how he approaches uh, the the rich young ruler, and then how he approaches mm. the Pharisees. And mm-hmm. what you see is very you know very different uh, ways of uh, of engagement. Um, but all of them exactly what that particular person needed, and one of the but one of the commonalities you see Jesus doing is is going for the going for the heart, right? So with the with the Samaritan woman, he's not he mentions obviously her behavior, right? Her scandalous behavior, um, but that's that's more um, part of the conversation rather than what he's getting at is where where does worship happen? What, who is the father seeking? You know, worshipers, you know, in spirit, you know, in, in truth. And um, and so he's going for the heart. He goes for the heart of the, the rich young ruler, right? It, it, and the, in, in Mark 10, we read that Jesus, you know, basically is able to pinpoint this man's issue is he, his treasure is an earthly treasure. He, he, He's he's okay with all these other commandments in his mind, but 
when Jesus says, go and sell uh, all you have and give it to the poor, he goes away sad because it has a grip, you know, on his on his heart. And certainly with the Pharisees, um, Jesus is much more direct uh, with with them. They are the they're the religious elite. Right. And he is going right for their hearts as well um, in terms of the way he um you know, he sees the ways in which they've elevated the laws and and traditions that actually obscure the the heart of mercy and justice that the Lord is is looking for. So so yeah, I kind of look at um, how Jesus, in a sense, mm-hmm. in each situation, approaches sinners in uh, in slightly different ways, and then that has. Impact for us. Certainly, one of the one of the impacts is when we're approaching someone. A, is it in love? Because Jesus always approached, even even in his most stern moments with the with the Pharisees, his heart was a heart of love. Um, Do we have that? You know, sometimes when we approach sinners, or I'll say when I approach sinners, um, it's because I'm irritated and I want to I want to get things straightened out so that I you know more comfortable. Jesus goes for people because of love, and he goes for the heart. Do we do we do that as well? Yeah, you give a nice illustration of uh, when you're at Westminster and Paul Tripp set you an assignment, and uh, I think you watched or listened to an interview he had with someone who was ranting and raving, and he told you all to go away, and you write a paper on what you would say to him, and you <laughs> you said you wrote a letter, a paper, a response to him, you said you let him have it. Yes, <laughs> yes. But... But what was it that Paul Tripp said at the beginning of the next class that's really stayed with you? Yeah. So what he said was so. So what was so very obvious about this guy was his was his sin. You know, it was just right out there, and uh, and Paul basically said, if you don't connect with this man's pain, he's he's never going to come back. And it was like, ooh, you know, like so. There it is. Like, will you will you see the suffering? hear the suffering before you move to what's wrong. And certainly there were lots of things that were, you know, were off base. There's no doubt about it. But the, what, what was the entry point for that, for that man's life? Um, and it, it was suffering. And in my mind, I was moving directly to confront that sin because that's what he needs. And, and confrontation is ultimately where we need to get to with sinner, with someone who's sinning, isn't it? It's ultimately calling them out. But I like what you're saying. You you come at it at different angles depending who it is. The the woman at the well gets a different approach from Christ compared to the Pharisees, where he is often just far you're, more with them. But at the, in both cases, he's confronting each of them with their sin ultimately, so that mm-hmm. they come repentance, which is also an ultimate act of love towards them. Mm-hmm. Um, your final couple of chapters, um, uh, you call it um, remaining balanced in ministry. Now, balance is often a, a term that can be viewed with suspicion. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I often do. But what I liked here was what you're really doing is bringing saint, suffer and sinner together and talking about the dangers of overemphasizing one over the other or overemphasizing any one of them. Yeah. Do you want to just tease that out a wee bit? Sure. So any any one aspect of our experience could be uh, could be over um, overplayed, so to speak. Now, generally, we don't overplay the the saint aspect. If anything, most of us underplay that. Um, but I have I have met people that feel like 
that's the only thing that matters. You know, they're standing with Christ. They're perfect in him. And I, and I tell a story of a, of a guy in, uh, in a former church where I, I went to speak to him about something in his life that was concerning. And he was very adamant that uh, he was a child of, of, of the king and don't put the law on him. Um, and so that, that, that he, he basically saw it as a binary. Like he, he, was, either, he was either a saint or he was a sinner. And clearly he was a saint, so don't talk to him about, about mm-hmm. sin. So that would be, I think, one, uh, one way in which that can be, uh, can be overplayed. Maybe just also uh, only speaking about the position that we have as, you know, as, as perfect and fully justified you know, in Christ without, uh, without highlighting the need for the, the active uh, outworking of our positional uh, perfection in, in Jesus, which is how, how do we, you know, how do we live uh, day by day according to God's command? So I think that would be one way or some of the ways in which we can overplay um, saint. We can overplay suffer in, in the sense when when our suffering uh, becomes the, the sun around which our life orbits. Um, and so all we think about, all we talk about um, is is our experience of suffering. And again, we've, we've been talking about how seriously God takes our experience of, of suffering. And he, we, are, we, are, we are victims. There is no doubt um, when, when people sin uh, against us. But is that the only, is that the only piece? What does it, what does it look like for a person? And, and this may take, this may take a lifetime, particularly if there have been severe and significant uh, you know, trauma, sin done to them by by other people. Um, what does it look like to have a growing sense that that God is with me, He's for me, that He is actually, though I do not understand this this suffering, um, that He is with me in it, and He is indeed bringing transformation and redemption in uh, in the midst of that. Um, and again, someone someone who's um, Overemphasizing suffering may not be as willing to look at their own culpability in in sin. Right? We are we are both um, you know people that that have been sinned against, but we sin against others. So do we have eyes for that? And then I think thirdly, we we can overemphasize the the sinner aspect of our experience, where we all we see is what is unfinished and needs to be uh, yet uh, accomplished in our lives, that all the places where we, where we fail. And so uh, we, we are hard on ourselves. Maybe we're hard on other people as, as well, because if we have eyes only to see the negative and what is incomplete in our own lives, we are likely to, to do that with other people as well. Um, as opposed to, and here I'm thinking of, you know, um, Simon, Jesus at Simon the, the Pharisee's house in Luke 7, where such a contrast between, you know, kind of this, um, you know, stingy hearted, you know, Simon versus this, the lavish love of this woman, because she has experienced the, the forgiveness of, of Christ. And, and I think that we, we, we have that kind of stinginess, whether it's with ourselves or with others, if we're ultimately uh, focused on the, the sin aspect, all three are important, um, not any one.
Yeah. And <clears throat> I like at the end of the book, you sort of have a case study of a woman called Susan, obviously not her real name. Uh, but you sort of show how these things collide in each of us. The, the, the three aspects of saint, suffer and sinner, they're never compartmentalized. We're, we're, we're always one of the three, you know, in, in any given circumstance. Um, and I think that's a really helpful case study at the end to sort of show the complexity. We're back to that quote at the beginning, people don't come with uh, operating instructions. And so, you know, she's a complex case. And yet I think you very helpfully diagnose and show the different ways, you know, to deal with the saint aspect, the suffering and the and the sinner aspect. So I think it's a really nice way to close off the book where you don't just apply in three distinct sections, but you actually bring it back to look at someone holistically and say, well, all of these things are operating, uh, are, are active here in this one person's life moment in her yeah. story of redemption. That's right. And that's, I mean, our relationships in that sense are organic, right? They're not like mm-hmm. these first five minutes, I'm going to treat you as a saint and then we'll move to how's it going with your suffering? And then you know, like, it's, it's not, it's, it's organic, but if we keep in mind that, that every believer we meet is, is having these experiences, mm-hmm. um, that will, I think that will help us remain um, holistic and balanced as we as we approach folks. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm certainly going to take it on board in pastoral situations to think of somebody as a saint, a sufferer and a sinner. I think it's a really helpful uh, sort of threefold category to think of them as my Christian brother or sister. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike, it's been great to have you on the afterword, uh, this podcast. Uh, I want to finish with a, a final question. That is, tell us a wee bit about what's in store for CCEF in the next year or so, and what are you excited about at the moment? Well, one of the one of the things that's uh, we're very excited about is a is a pastors conference. It's going to happen uh, happen in May. It's it's called Pastor Care, uh, you know, encouragement uh, and for for wisdom in ministry, um, or encouragement and wisdom uh, in ministry uh, post twenty twenty. <laughs> And uh, Ed Welch, Alistair, myself, and uh, Ray and Janie Ortland will be uh, will be doing that conference. So we're really thankful. This has been a obviously such a difficult year uh, for pastors. Um, the the pastors that I've been talking to over this past year have it's it's been very difficult on so many different fronts. Um, the obviously shifts in terms of the way they're doing uh, worship and pastoral care and uh, divisions and factions within within churches. It's been it's been so difficult. So we're hoping that this will be a a place of uh, of refreshment uh, for uh, for weary uh, for weary pastors. So very excited about that conference in May. I think you know when I think of what's going on at CCF, I think of um, uh, I think of C.S. Lewis's um, "The Last Battle," where the, where the Narnians, you know, are, are, are crying further up and further in. You know, there, there's this sense in which we just want to do more of uh, of what we're of what we're doing better. We want to bring. Um, you know the, the the fruit of our of our work and more and more to the the local church. Um, you know we're we're wanting to do uh, a better job at the at the end of the spectrum where we're training vocational counsel. 
counselors. So we want to do a we want to do a better job with with training, and we're we're thankful to be be doing that uh, in partnership with with Westminster's uh, MA in counseling. Um, so those are some of the things that, and we're excited about hopefully this year getting back in person. Uh, we've all been working from home as as, as everyone else. So. We're uh, looking. I'm looking forward to being able to walk down the hall and have a conversation that's impromptu with someone, as opposed to sending them a Zoom link. <laughs> oh, true, isn't it? I think it's been a reminder for all of us. We are embodied souls in contact, in need of community and contact with others. It's just that you cannot exist. No man or woman is an island. And uh, if anything, COVID's shown us that, hasn't it? It has. It certainly has. Uh, it's like. Um, I always use the illustration of people who haven't been to church for a while. It's like uh, taking a coal, a burning piece of coal out of a fire and setting it to the side. And just that, you know, it immediately starts to lose its heat and go out. And and when you just don't have that frequent contact with other brothers and sisters, it uh, starts to impact you, doesn't it? So, yeah, Yeah. we're praying the Lord would help us turn the corner on all of this and uh, get back to some level of normalcy. Yes, we are praying that as well. (laughs) Well, Mike, it's been great to have you on uh, the afterword. Um, Please uh, keep writing, and uh, we're excited to hear um, how this book is selling, uh, Saints, Suffers, and Sinners, and uh, we look forward to reading other things that you may produce in the future. uh, Thanks again for speaking to us today. God bless. Thank you, Johnny. Really appreciate it.